and welcome to the very 102nd Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast all about board games, the people who love board games, and board games. I'm Matt Lees, joined as ever by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matt Lees. Hello, that's my name. Welcome to 2020. Yeah, right? It's the cyberpunk year. It's finally here, and I'm celebrating by cutting off all of my arms and legs and replacing them with kitchen implements. I thought you were going to say board games there. Yeah, I thought about it, but I, I think it's more useful to have, like, whisks. Only marginally, but, but still. But Matt, who's this in the room with us? Well, it's a burglar. It's not a burglar, don't worry. Um, <laughs> we are joined today by Tom Brewster. Hello, Tom. Hello, Matt, and hello, Quins. So this is Tom's first appearance on the <laughs> Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, so you have to be very gentle with him. Please. Because uh, he's, not, he's done a lot of radio stuff, but he's not done this before, and I can tell from knowing him well enough, he's visibly quite nervous. Uh, Tom is a new member of Shut Up and Sit Down. He did an internship with us. Uh, you may not have seen him in that many things during the internship because he was, uh, as he likes to refer to it, the shadow intern. I was mainly costumed for most of my internship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. this is like... Method. you. So, in fact, this is where there's a montage of all the different reviews you're in to reveal, oh my gosh, that was Tom all along. In the funny hat, he was in the Cthulhu Wars video. As a peasant, he was in Taverns of Jeffenthal. Also yep. in the Oink review. Matt, he's been in loads of stuff. Yeah, he has. He's been in loads of stuff, but... um. Yeah, he's sort of, he's just, he's just the shadow intern. I, I like the shadow intern as a phrase. I just want to keep using it. Yeah, no, it I agree. It sounds like um, a character you kill quite early on in Metal Gear Solid, but then it turns out they're actually alive. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Tom is great, and you're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more of him in the future. Welcome to Shut Up and Sit Down, Tom. Thanks. This is the first time we've actually <laughs> formally said that to you with both of us in the room. Yeah. So I feel like now on, this should on, be... Hang on, hang on. Don't applaud yourself, Tom. <laughs> it felt like the right thing to do. And remember, if you're nervous, just imagine that you're completely naked. Yeah. Okay. And that's the Shut Up and Sit Down official hazing ritual done. Can Welcome. I put my clothes back on? You can put them on after we've recorded the podcast. So on today's podcast, we've got a lot of board games to talk about. So let's make hay while the board game sun is shining. And what are we going to be talking about today, Quince? Uh, we are going to be talking about Chocolate Factory, a game of chocolates and failing to make chocolates. We're going to be talking about Abomination, a game of making Frankensteins and failing to make Frankensteins. We're going to be talking about Finger Guns at High Noon, a game of pointing guns at your friends, but the guns are fingers, but your friends still die. We're going to be talking about a little Japanese card game called Goat and Goat, which is really good. We're going to be talking about Suburbia, a classic hexagonal tile-laying stress fest. We're going to be talking about Vindication. How would you two it's describe Vindication? a modern hexagonal-laying thing fest. There you go. We're keeping it current. We're going to be talking about The King's Dilemma, a game of dilemmas, and telling the king to do things even if there's going to be real bad consequences for the king, for everybody. I really like it. I'm sorry, I'm getting overexcited. We're going to be talking about Kalos 1303, an update to one of the first greatest Euro games of all time. Mm. And that's it. I, I, I missed my intonation there. I should have gone down for the last one, but I thought the list would keep going. But that's not it. We're going to be having a very special reading from Ava Foxfort of their column. The first part of that, so you can have a listen to that. That'd be lovely. Listen to that. And then also we're going to be talking about some of the stuff we've reviewed recently, which means if you're not somebody who keeps up with all of the lovely videos we make on Shut Up and Sit Down, we're going to have a quick roundup of some of the stuff we've talked about or reviewed recently in the videos so you can go, ah, yes, I kind of know what they think about things and I still refuse to watch their videos, which is fine. You do you. If you live your life in a car, it's better to listen to things than it is to watch videos because you're going to crash. Thank you. So let's begin the podcast 
with a talk about Chocolate Factory. Yes, thanks everybody for their patience, because we were going to talk about this on the last episode, but we had to uh, rush through it for time constraints. And now I can officially say Chocolate Factory is... Fine. Okay. It's all right. I knew it. Uh, yeah. But no, this actually is one of the more fun themes. This comes from uh, Alley Cat Games, and it is designed by David Digby, Matthew Dunstan, and Brett so, J. Gilbert. So, so what exactly is the theme? The theme is uh, you've got a chocolate factory. But to give the game some credit, it plays a lot like, um, if you imagine, you inherited a chocolate factory for real. Which is to say, you might completely destroy it. So when you start, you have a little conveyor belt. And the way the game works, uh, this is a, I should stress, a resource management game. You're going to get raw cocoa that uh, goes onto your factory on the far left of the conveyor belt. And then you can buy new parts, sort of new machines that sit either to the uh, above or below the conveyor belt. And then when everybody sort of runs their engine, as you often do in these engine building games, you slide chocolate from left to right, and then you activate machines. So maybe you have this machine that goes clonk and turns the chocolate into sort of like raw cocoa powder. Then it slides to the right again and clonk, you ha- you, the raw cocoa gets turned into a toffee. But listen, right? What? What, 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 what's, your, what's your problem, Matt? That's not what toffee's made of. Yeah, I know. Look, it's abstract. It's a, bo- it's a, board, ge- it's a board game. It's a board game. What? Stop looking at me like that. We had enough what? of this last year. Okay. What? But here's the the thing that makes Chocolate Factory interesting is that, first off, these machines run on coal. Tom, you're looking at me like, what if I don't have enough coal? I'm looking at you like, why, why do these machines run on coal oh, in but- the Chocolate Factory? Should they run on like sugar or something thematic and fun? Wow. It's amazing that you said that. Also, great question. I should stress, this is not, despite what it sounds like, a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory thing. My first action in my first game of Chocolate Factory was to employ a coal miner to try and get some more coal. This is like the gritty Victorian idea of a chocolate factory. So if you... Factories run on coal, boy! And if you... Seize the shock of production. If you do not have enough uh, coal, you can, in fact, insert any resource in the game, so chocolate or toffee or, you know, chocolate bars or caramel... Into the furnace. Into the furnace to run the machine. That is not efficient. But maybe you can do it if you're completely desperate. Fully produced chocolate. Or just just for the joy of making more chocolate. You use chocolate to make chocolate. Just to satisfyingly run your machine. So, you know, you joke, but that is part of the joy of it. And, you know, having this engine that churns out, you know, toffees at the end is kind of a delight. You can also make little selection boxes. If you Mm. have like, um, you might have a machine that turns a caramel and a toffee into a selection box, which is the highest quality of chocolate that you can have, as we all know. Um, I want to move on because Chocolate Factory is not necessarily a game I would recommend people buy, even though it's gorgeous, even though it's interesting. I just think there's better engine building games out there. But what I will say, it's one of those Euro games I absolutely love where it only takes an hour, so it's short enough that it can be designed in a way that players can completely ruin themselves. Like, if on turn one you cover an existing, like, oh, gee, it's my new day at the factory. And then someone comes and says, do you want to buy this machine that makes chocolate bars? You go, yeah. If you put it in the wrong place by, like, covering up an existing machine, you might realize, oh, but it only makes one chocolate into a chocolate bar, which means as your conveyor belt pushes everything from left to right, lots of raw, unpressed cocoa slides past the chocolate machine because it can't stamp it fast enough. Then suddenly when you come into work the next day and you go to turn on the conveyor belts, you've got loads of cocoa in the wrong place. (laughs) And if anything falls off the end of your conveyor belt, it's finished. But if it's not processed, then it's junk. And 
I just got this lovely thematic vibe when I was playing Chocolate Factory that I was like a 10-year-old boy in an office <laughs> while a bunch of sort of burly northern Englishmen were looking at me going, this kid is going to get us all fired. <laughs> and that was really nice. Um, so if you do particularly love chocolate or Euro games with uh, delicious themes, I would say Chocolate Factory, You could lit- it's a game you could quite honestly buy and it's fine. I tell you what, though, when you started explaining it, I invented it in my head, a game that I want to play, which would be a King of Dragon Pass-style iPad management game themed in the idea of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, that would you, be so good! Where you turn up, and instead of getting the tour, Willy Wonka just has a heart attack, and then you, it's like he's left you this factory, and then it's just managing a factory which is both insane, impossible, and prone to blow up. I mean... I'd, I'd love that. I would play that. I would play something a bit like Fallout Shelter, but you're making an increasingly sort of Orwellian chocolate factory. That- and it's like, do you want to turn on the bubble machine? I don't know. <laughs> like, how many will die? <laughs> anyway, um, I'd like that game, that fictional game, to exist. So that's Chocolate Factory. Uh, now, to Tom, I don't want to put a lot of pressure on you right now, but you've been playing a different Euro game called Abomination by Dan Blanchett. So if Chocolate Factory was underwhelming, I bet this is going to be a great Euro game. It's completely whelming. It's the most whelming game I've ever played okay. in my whole life. So, for, so <laughs> hang on. I, I'm aware of the word underwhelming. Mm-hmm. Whelming. I was, I was whelmed. You were whelmed. It was fine. Good. So, Abomination, Era Frankenstein. Uh, it's kind of... So, you play Frankenstein's little monsters running around Notre Dame creating Frankenstein's... Wait, you play the actual monsters of no, Frankenstein? No, no, you, you play Frankenstein's little monsters. See, it's a little joke on the, uh, the idea of, of his kids. What? Frankenstein's little children's. So, Hang on, so there's Frankenstein's monster, yep. uh, and then there's Frankenstein's juniors. Frankenstein's juniors. So it's Frankenstein's little monsters' monsters. Little Frankenstein. Little Franken... So you run around uh, Notre Dame collecting body parts to put into your monster <laughs> that you're going to make and show off to everyone to get yourself you lots of points. body parts. So there's lots of ways you can collect body parts. You can collect them from the cemetery. Then they're going to be really old and manky. You can collect them from the hospital where people have sort of unfortunately died and you just sneak in and grab one. Um, or you can maybe collect them from alive people if you want and do a small murder, which is kind of fun. I mean, it was a weird thing with the game where I was playing it with a few friends and one of my friends is a medical student and the first thing he did was do a murder because he wanted to make the freshest living corpse around. And then every subsequent turn attempted to do a murder, even when the game was screaming at him, don't do any more murders, you'll lose so many points. <laughs> it's always medical students that are a little bit wild. <laughs> but that's perhaps too wild. Absolutely. I feel like this speaks poorly of me, but I want to know what happens when you've got the parts. I want to know about the economy of <laughs> okay. getting some legs home. So when you get a body, it gives you lots of different resources, which can be like muscle, bone, blood organ i think it's a pretty gory thing yeah i've seen this in action and and heard a bit about it and yeah you were saying that like your friend got quite annoyed at the point where they discovered they just weren't allowed to murder anyone else because they'd they'd hit rock bottom yeah it's they needed you constantly need more fresh blood so he found himself constantly needing to do more and more fresh murders to you know to get all that blood but there is a point when you can't you literally can't do any more or the law will come to your door and they will they'll take your blood out of your body by murdering you do wait. I, no, I do, don't. I don't think so. Okay, but it just means there's a point where, like, the war, the law wants you, so you can't do any more murders, lest you be caught. This basically. kind of reminds me of when we played um, Evil High Priest, and yes. uh, a game where uh, Matt, check this out. It's a Euro game where mm-hmm. you collect resources and you use the resources to get re- more resources, but occasionally the feds can raid you, and if you haven't hidden your resources yeah. well enough, 
It's all gone. I heard about this, and some of those resources sometimes it's just victory points. Yes, it's exactly. Like the police have taken my points. Yes, you're. <laughs> <laughs> which yes, is, which is the sort of thing I will be shouting on the street in twenty years as I walk around in circles. Without wanting to derail you, though, so what held Abomination back from being uh, good? So it's it's super thematic and super funny. Like we were sitting there and just chuckling the whole time at like, oh, I just think I'll do one more murder. Like it really captivates that the whole kind of need to do more, and you're always and you, you're sort of driven to do murders by the end of it, uh, which is great. But I played it once. I was like, that's brilliant, and I, and I never want to play it again just because I feel like the theme is everything that's kind of holding it together to some extent. Mm, that's exactly how I felt with Chocolate Factory, yeah. actually. There's a really cool thing at the end. Well, a mechanic that I thought would be really cool in practice, but it kind of ended up being frustrating, which is where, so you put all your body pieces together and then to get your monster to come alive, you've got to shock it with electricity. Mm-hmm. And you can flip these jars full of electricity because how else would you keep electricity? And the more you flip, the more dice you roll onto your body. But the problem is these dice have like damage markers on them. Okay. So the more dice you roll, the more likely you are just to blow up the corpse you've spent ages trying to animate. Okay. It's it's kind of terrible. So I spent the whole game assembling this perfect body and I was like, oh, I'm so proud of it. We're going to flip the switch. And I flipped it and just blew its head off like straight away. <laughs> wow. I mean, so you're, you're kind of, that sounds amazing to me, but I, of course it's a Euro game. So you've spent an hour amassing the resources, I guess a lot less funny when yeah, you've yeah. just lost all your progress. You spend so long putting it together and then for it to just be one cruel dice roll. Cause then someone Did else- Did you was, lose all of the corpse? I, I lost some parts. I lost okay. the head and the leg, I think. It's really funny because- <laughs> It's so, a weird explosion. Yeah, <laughs> the way that you assemble the corpse is you build the the unskinned leg, then you can flip it to the skinned side, and then you have to make it alive. So sometimes you can just like do a little bit of damage, but it's just funny the idea that someone tried to animate their skinned leg, but instead of animating it, they just blew all the skin off it again. <laughs> I'm imagining it like a carry on film, like some, like removing a stocking very quickly. Yeah. There's like the sound of a slide whistle, and all the skin goes flying <laughs> I into the corner. Feel like at some point Frankenstein's going to come in and see his kids like making these bodies by. And be like, no, no, you just stitch a leg to a. Th- you don't need to put separate, different skin on it. What are you doing? <laughs> it's kind of bizarre. So it sounds to me that basically, if you like chocolate factories and chocolate, then then chocolate factory is a kind of okay Euro game to do with chocolate. And if you yeah. like reanimating dismembered corpses with the chance of potentially exploding said corpses, then yeah, then yeah, abominations for you. It's great. It's another game you can buy. Hey, I'll tell you another game that literally exists you can buy. Uh, Matt and I recently played Finger Guns at High Noon by John Velgus. And if you imagine what a game with that name sounds like... It's that. It is that, yeah. Yeah. I played a lot of this at New Year as well, and it went down a big treat with people who don't play a lot of games. Uh, Even though it looks alarmingly like a lot to take in, because you hand everyone a little sheet. It's like a little A5 sheet with a little plastic clip at the edge of it and it has a list of all these things you can do with your hands and it's basically like being taught sign language by a mad cowboy um because it's basically just you can pretend you're pointing a gun at someone and then it means you'll shoot them or you can pretend you're pointing a gun at someone but put all of your fingers up instead of just two and that's a power shot <laughs> yeah point. it might look like a handshake actually you're shooting you're a shotgun shot at them. really hard really big guns and then you can do stuff like you can do a lasso hand signal which means you get to take a follower from the middle of the table and this is the point where the game starts to become a little bit too complicated for its own boots but the core of it really is 
you all just point at each other and you're either recovering health or shooting someone or blowing up people with dynamite and then you all adjust your little sheets to see how much health you've got and if you run out of health, you become a ghost, which means, oh no, but don't worry, you're not out of the game. It just means you can only shoot people. <laughs> this is... um. I don't think that's how ghosts work, but it means you can shoot people or stop other people from healing. It has some really nice, simple ideas, which means like by putting up just two fingers or three fingers or four fingers, you will heal that much health. But if anyone else around the table does the same amount of fingers, then you don't heal. Because, of course, this is the thing. All the hand signals are thrown out simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And in one of those rules that is just so much fun to teach, you might ask Tom... But how do you know when to throw out symbols? The answer is when any player goes three, two, one, go. Yeah. Which means a thing that I think for me, this is the comedy that powers the game. Maybe you go over to Matt yeah. and say, Matt, do you want to throw up four fingers and I'll throw up three? Then three, two, one, shout someone across the table. And suddenly, because you can't think, often you end up throwing out like a gesture like I'm doing now to the two of you, which is not even a gesture in the game. And if that yeah. happens, then you are out. You did nothing this round. The, the only person at any point who can't just call three, two, one as quickly as they want is the person who did it last time. But it, it means that, yeah, like I, in theory, this could be a game where people talk and make plans and then... And it kind of is. It kind it, of is. It's like 40% that game. But then as soon as, sometimes if you see other people conspiring and you think, oh, I want to conspire with somebody, rather than you reaching across the table and saying, hey, hey, we should do something. You just go, three, two, one. And then you hope that you will have like ruined someone else's thing. Actually, the way it plays out within that framework is wonderful because it means you don't want to start actively visibly conspiring because you know someone will just shout three two one which means you end up like making eye contact with someone across the table and just putting up three fingers and pointing very gently as if to go i'm gonna do three you do four and you get away with it or i saw one game where somebody lost because there's one of the things you can do is form a posse which means everyone who puts up a thumb if more than half the people who are alive put up a thumb then the other half of people who are still alive lose loads of health but Somebody was trying to form a secret posse by just like giving the thumbs up to people and making eye contact. And the last person they were trying to do it with, they couldn't make eye contact with. But the other player they were hoping to kill saw them doing it. And so then they put up a thumb. And they were like, it then had this person going, but you all like teamed up against me. And they were like, no, we were trying to get you on side, but you wouldn't look at us. And it's got some really wonderful DNA. It's one of those games where it's such a simple, fun idea. It's just a bit of a shame that the one thing that doesn't quite hang together as well is the part of the game that you feel like the designers have put into the game to make it feel like a more worthwhile box in a way, because obviously the main components are your hands. (laughs) (laughs) They've put a deck of cards in which are followers, and they're basically extra cowboy characters that you can win by doing the lasso thing. And some of them are tremendously fun. They're things like one-off I can block a power shot, or one-off I can do a really crazy powerful power shot, or my particular favourite, you can, when you do the normal guns thing, you can do it with two guns at once. You can shoot two people at once. Brilliant. But then a lot of them just add rules and add things where yeah. you think, ah, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, we found ourselves just skipping a lot of them because we're like, nah, this isn't good. This is going to make the game less fun. And it just felt like rather than having something really simple of just putting in like maybe five of these cards and keeping it like that, they've got a little deck of them and, and they just... It just feels thin. It feels like they've included them because they felt like it's a box product. You've got to put something in there. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun, but 
But it's it's one of those things where the core idea is fantastic. It could have been a classic, and it's just not quite there. <laughs> For me, I think, you know, Figure Guns at High Noon is a game that everyone can have a bit of fun with, um, but it's hard for me to think who I would tell to go out and buy it. Yeah. Uh, conversely, I'll just drop a mention here for Dead Last, which is another game of sitting around the table and deciding who to kill secretly with lots of winks and nudges. It is way meaner and absolutely not for everyone in a way that I think Finger Guns is. Mm. Um, but Dead Last is, I think, I mean, Dead Last is the game that's in my collection. Uh, so I will say that much. If you want a really mean game of sitting around the table and deciding who you're going to <laughs> shoot in the head, Dead Last is that game. It's just... It's so mean. I mean, I'm saying it's mean. How many times can I say it's mean? It's really mean. I mean, I know people who I think I believe. I think Alan Girding, Alan Girding, friend of the show, hates it. Yes, which um, is fair, but yeah. I, I don't think he'd begrudge me for saying I love it. No, 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 not at all. But it's it's just it's that mean. That yeah, there are people who who not just like oh I don't like it. There are people who just hate it yes. because of what it is. Uh, that's nice. Well, hey, we'll talk about a good game next. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking about, well, we're going to try and talk about Goat and Goat by Hisashi Hayashi, a fabulous Japanese game designer uh, with lovely art by Ryo uh, Nyamo. Great. You <laughs> did not really... Thank you for trying to say those names. Yeah. I, I was going to ask somebody to try. Would you believe that I lived in Tokyo for three months? Uh, no, is the answer to that. So, Matt and I played this little card game back at PAX Unplugged. So, Tom, you're going to be a bit of a weather balloon here because okay. uh, we're going to describe this to you and you have to tell us whether our half-remembered uh, sort of thoughts make sense to you. Sure. Okay? Yeah, that sounds fine. Imagine a deck of cards, loads of goats. Okay. 100% goats. Or goats. In the deck? In the deck. Yeah. Okay, okay. In the deck. Not, <laughs> not a deck of cards surrounded sure, by goats. Sure, sure. It's a deck of cards with loads of goats. <laughs> we're at Pax Unplugged. We're surrounded by goats. <laughs> How are we going to get out of this one? In the middle of the table are a bunch of mountains of increasing number and in three colours. The goats also come in three colours. Sure. So you've, in your initial hand of cards, you might have some green and red and blue goats with different numbers on. Mm-hmm. And there's like a, a, a bunch of rubbish goats that are number one. Imagine a rubbish goat. That's what the card okay, looks like. Yep. And imagine a really cool goat with like night vision goggles. Yep. That's the number five goat. You've and- got... Is there different art for these goats? Yes, but okay. very small changes. Uh, also, I don't think I think it's important that they don't actually get like night vision goggle goats. No, I'm just but, gonna. I know, I know you were doing a joke, but I think it's very important in the world of goats and goat lovers yep. that people remember because I remember the art so much. They go from little baby goats with one like little cute little ones. Oh, they get they, bigger horns. They get bigger don't they? horns and older until like the best goat is just like a it dead. Just goat. Looks majestic. You're just like that's a cool goat. But it's a cool goat within the realm of goats, 100%. <laughs> if, uh, if people don't understand our uh, excitement for goats, if you just do a little Google image search, beautiful Pakistani goats, let me tell you, best goats in the world come <laughs> careful, from Pakistan. Careful Googling that, mate. What? Anyway. Wait, sorry, I mean, I, I'm going to challenge you on this. How could you corrupt that search term so it becomes I, rude? I don't know, but I, just be careful uh, typing I, anything that starts with beautiful on the internet because we've ruined the internet. It's a bad place. That's, but if you look at goat and goat on Portugal, yeah, okay. then there are, the pictures of these goats are cute as a button. Good Lord. Let's get back on track. So, yeah, Tom, please. you've got a hand of goats. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, now, also, there's a shop of goats on the table. Mm-hmm. Now, what you need to do is assign the goats in your hand to climb a mountain. Sure. The way that you do this is you can play on your turn a number of goats from your hand of one color. Um, and then you can assign a sort of, once you've got a herd of goats that's big enough, you can send it to go and climb a mountain and you then score that mountain. However, there are a bunch of circumstances in which you actually sort of overfill your goat herd because once you've put down some goats, like let's say you put down some number ones, you can only then add to your sort of bunch of green number one goats if by playing a higher number, I mm, believe. Yeah, yeah. Good. I'm yeah. really relying on you as a fact check, Matt. Yeah, so basically it's like, let's just say I've got three green ones in my hand. I think, you know what? I'm going to play them to the table. Fantastic. But then it means that if I get more green ones... 
they're just filling up my hand with junk. I cannot use them until I have cleared that pile. Right. Um, so I need to get some twos or maybe some threes. And maybe you've got one three and you put it down, but then you get loads of twos and you're like, well, I can't use these now. The problem with this is you're constantly building out the three different colors of goat packs in front of you. If you ever find yourself in a situation whereby all three of your goat packs are currently uh, have no free slots available for new goats. <laughs> Sorry, but we're not hiring new goats at the moment. Then you can't play. And if you can't play, it's bad. Yes, you any goats that are lost, or I think even if you draw cards and then can't play them, I think if they spill over from your hand, because you have yeah. a, quite a tight hand yep. of six, all of those goats become, get ready, Tom, negative goats. Oh my God. And yes. they are all negative points. So let's keep this simple. It is a risk-reward game where you're trying to build up these goat herds to climb really high-numbered mountains. Mm-hmm. Ideally, before other players do it, because players who are mean will grab the low-numbered mountains, so everyone starts, has to start playing dangerously. Yeah. But if you uh, sort of get too greedy or you fail the hand management or you draw too many goats, you start racking up negative points. It's not a complicated game, but this is one of those games that sings in its balance and its yeah. design. It was one of the most entertaining games we played at Plax Unplugged. Unfortunately, lovely. I just also should add, I don't think it has a Western release yet. No. But if Shut Up and Sit Down has any power at all, Publishers of the World, grab yourselves a goat and goat. Just everyone grab a goat <laughs> now. Publish it overseas. It's fantastic. It's uh, the wonderful, I love the interplay of the fact that you have this this lovely little tableau of all of the mountains going from one to, you know, three to ten or whatever, and then being like, you're going, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for six red. Six red is gonna be mine. I'm gonna grab that times six multiplier thing. I'm gonna get that. And then you look over and it's gone. And you're like, go took the six. And then it's like, all right, I'm gonna get seven. And it's like, seven's gone. And you're like, I have to go to nine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was remarkable. It was, it was just a really solid little thing. Mm. Uh, moving on, speaking of remarkable games that you two have finally played, about something like six years ago, uh, I was singing the praises of a game called Suburbia by Ted Ausback, and now you two chumpazoids have been playing the big, exhaustive new deluxe edition. It's so big. It's so big. It's got so many game trays in it. It's yeah. ferocious. So speaking as a fan of the original Suburbia, obviously you'd think, oh, Quinn's love Suburbia wouldn't he bring the new edition to his house to own forever? The answer is no. It's actually so big that I had it sent to you two rather than claiming it for myself, <laughs> which I think for like an exhaustive deluxe edition, that can't be good. Can no, it? <laughs> I kind of, I feel that as well in the fact that we played a quick game of it. And in a way, because of the scale of the box, I think we were expecting a much bigger, meatier game. And we were quite pleasantly surprised when we finally got down to sit and play it, that it was just a really light, nippy, fun thing. Yeah, uh, it's it's one yeah. of the original, really simple Euro games. Yeah. Do you guys want to describe it? You build a neighbourhood. You've got a space that's your own, and you can take a tile from the sort of strange pool of tiles that get increasingly more expensive the further along they are, and then you add it to your little village. And they normally have bonuses depending on where you put them. It's the most sort of raw essence of Euro game, place the thing to get the bonus to build an engine. But just, uh, yeah. yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And then just execute it in a way that is continually rewarding. Every time you put down a tile and it sockets into this hexagonal map and tells you a little bit of a story as well. I like, mean, the theming of it, yeah, was what was lovely. And the fact that it's yes. designed in a way that means as you're placing these things, the adjacency bonus stuff means that you're bringing a little town to life. Yes. Like the first thing you did in your town, Tom... 
Uh, I put a slaughterhouse next to my suburb. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really that, was that's a, suburbia. It yeah. was ill-advised, but it, it worked out in the end, mainly because you were looking at my town and thinking, how is this horrible hellscape going to work? And there was a point where you could have skewered me and taken a thing that would have really messed with my strategy, but I'm assuming your thought process was... I couldn't afford was, to, no. <laughs> I just literally couldn't afford I would have skewered him, but I looked at my money and I'm like, oh, I'm a couple of pounds short to skewer this boy. <laughs> See, this is what makes suburbia sing for me. The game is so good, but then you just have all this, like, completely incidental storytelling like um, one of the expansions which will be in the new uh, Suburbia Deluxe box is edges sort of borders which are not hexagons but strips that you can use to wall yourself in so they're quite affordable but they massively limit the direction you can build yeah. but these are continually funny obviously there's like military testing ground and radioactive <laughs> dump site but the one that really tickled me was next to a sort of like a school and a stationary shop and an old folks home I laid a border which was a cliff edge <laughs> <laughs> it's just it, this. see this is what makes the game sing for me and I said it years ago but with future expansions I think because I don't know probably wasn't because of the shut up and sit down review calling it a funny game but the expansions just got goofier and goofier because Core Suburbia isn't very funny. It's almost accidentally funny. Yes. It's funny in the way that it's like, oh, it's an old folks home and a station shop and a McDonald's. It's very bleak. But when you start adding like, oh, and also there's a slaughterhouse and an airport, it can just get so grim it becomes funny. Well, it, it kind of reminded me of the the much hated SimCity game on PC where you, rather than being able to make lots of one big city, you make lots of little cities and it encourages you more to like really think okay, well I haven't got much space, so I'm going to really double down on one feature mm. and end up making some really bleak places sometimes. Yeah, I remember there's a a fancy restaurant and the rule is the fancy ma- restaurant makes you a ton of money so long as it's literally the only place to eat in your supper. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which is, yeah, the stories this tells. Yeah, I mean I made a really nice place. I made uh, a bunch of collect- connected lakes and then I had some like real estate some lakeside real estate that was making a bunch of money and it had a fancy car shop and a fancy restaurant and like some nice condos and basically I just made like a really nice uh, place where people might go on holiday and then look across the board <laughs> you just made about six factories I exhausted the whole the shared pool of factory buildings wow. all mine because I just thought you know, slaughterhouse why factories not? I'm going for it get to work <laughs> eat some meat it was good and it does have did you guys um, uh, I remember a few years ago I was quite impressed by the puzzle of how population works right yes, because, I love that oh yeah. good I'm glad you liked it yeah so I, it's been a while since I played it so the way it works is that as you um, you increase your like, income by doing mm. things and you increase your population growth and at the end of each turn which is super fast your population uh, is going to go up by that amount on this big board which in the, in the new version of the Vision original is a massive board it's like the same size as most game boards um, and then you're going to get some money but then every time you pass one of these little red houses on this massive neighborhood board which shows you like your basically your points you're going to push down your population growth and your your income by one point on this little track and so it means that as you accelerate to having a bigger and bigger town, you're having less new people coming in and you're having less income coming in, uh, which I don't exactly understand the theme, but it feels really exciting. And the fact that you can have these massive growth spurts, but then also like how to take a huge hit to your future growth, which means managing it is a really interesting part of the puzzle. And it gives you a sense of a city growing in a, in a strange sideways way. So here's the question I want to answer. Uh, back, uh, you know, how many moons ago we reviewed Suburbia, we recommended it utterly. You know, it was 40 quid for the base set. You could have fun with the base set if you wanted. You could grab the first expansion, Suburbia Inc. That's another 20 quid. Um, so now they've released this giant, beautiful collector's edition. You two said you like Suburbia. How much would you pay for this game? Uh, for this version, I don't think I would want it. 
Because the thing is, I liked it, but it's such a light little game. Mm, exactly. It's so fun that I would be way more interested in a a deluxe small version. Exactly. Update the art just like they've done, yeah. but then keep it in a small box with a small price tag. Yeah, because all of the expansion stuff, we put it into a... Well, actually, Tom put it into <laughs> uh, bits whilst I was glancing over the rules and popping stuff out. It was painstaking. Yeah. It was kind of like a little game in and of itself. We've done a few of these recently. Absolutely. We spent a whole morning (laughs) putting roads and boats into bags. And that was kind of, I think roads and boats was worse because I I didn't know what any of the pieces were. (laughs) It was just sort of chastising you guys. No, of course that's not that. Of course you don't put the geese with the art. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So we've got a a price tag of £100 for the collector's edition. So this sounds like a, like, because there's tons of nice stuff but it just felt very unnecessary like I wish it came in a little tiny box you could get out rather than this huge Goliath monstrosity but putting it away was weirdly satisfying Mm. but a a satisfaction that few can afford I mean I don't know I feel like there's as much as I hate the Zed in game trays and that colours everything I think about everything involving them (laughs) it's quite neat that I mean the puzzle we had of working out after popping out this insane quantity of hexes, we were kind of doing an Instagram story of it on our account and just losing our minds a little bit. It felt like a puzzle in itself, just working out how the hell this went into the box. Yeah. And there's some weird like bloat in there though, that like the first player marker made me laugh so much because there's this weird like plastic lump of 3D printed gubbins. And I showed it to Matt and I'm like, what do you think this is? And he was like, oh, I've no idea. It's the first player marker. And wow. it's like the size it's like of four inches tall. Thing. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's huge and completely unnecessary. I don't know. It, yeah. It's, it, it just, it's a massive blue 3D printed, uh, like hexagonal skyscraper that you just think, what is this in the box for? Other than... This is so. I think I'm annoyed because I I love suburbia. I really love it as a light game. And now, what do I say? Do I say buy the old ugly edition? Do I say mm, buy yes. the new? Yeah, yeah. I, that's kind of where I land, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I do like that this little tray things actually makes it so that you can put each of the expansions away in its little tray. And that's then nice. It's sealed up. And I feel like maybe if it's a game that's like a family game and you love it and it's sort of thing where you think, you know what, this is our game, we're going to play it, we play it every week. Absolutely, yeah. Actually, of course, of course. Pretty neat. But, yeah, not for me. The whole thing just felt like, this is cool. The game trays are cool. Like, I like having them in the box, but does it need it? Not really. That's an absolutely astounding, searing, <laughs> decisive. <laughs> I don't know. That's fair. I mean, this leads us on to something really in the fact that we have had a few games over the past six months, whereby we've had to spend a good hour and a half, like a good game session amount of time with two people just popping out the game and organising it. Okay, so that was just us talking about Suburbia Collector's Edition. This seems like a cool seg into Vindication, uh, the new Kickstarter board game by Mark... Ooh, I'll give it a crack. Uh, Mark Nadlinger. I think that sounds about right, but who knows? It's all about Only confidence. Mark. All about confidence. <laughs> So yeah, we we spent a long time organising this one and setting this up. You you quite enjoyed this setting this one up though, right? Yeah, I, enjoy, I think I enjoyed setting it up more than I enjoyed Suburbia because Suburbia felt like a hellscape and this felt like a fun little thing that you pop things in the right place. Like the way that each player has their own sort of tiny little box that you can stash your stuff in, it felt nice. Yeah, it's actually an incredible presentation. Mm. I think this, this game, Vindication, has possibly the sharpest eye for the combination of art direction and graphic design and physical design that I've possibly seen in any game. But Matt, what is Vindication? 
So Vindication is one of those games where you each have a little character who walks around a map and collects things and does things and fights things and goes on a bit of a uh, slightly abstract fantasy adventure and then wins if they have the most points. Now, this is a genre of game which more than anything in the world, I really want to love. And yet every time I play them, I always walk away from them feeling a little bit disappointed because they always have the promise of going on an adventure and doing some stuff, and they never really feel like that. And this game really goes out because it's called Vindication, and the idea of the whole game is that your character has been... You are a villain. You are scum. You are rubbish. You are an awful person. And it's your story of personal vindication, of becoming a hero and and having this turnaround. It's very weird, though, because when I sat down to play this with you two, you put down, you gave me a card. You're like, oh, here's all of your, oh, God, it was ridiculous. Here's your starting player mat, and here's your starting cards. Here's your starting tokens. Here's your starting metal triangle. Here's your, but then my card said, what is the exact sequence of words? It says you are a, like, scum-ridden outcast or something? something like that. I can't remember the exact wording, I'm afraid. So it's not that. But then I was like, what? It says I'm a scum-ridden outcast. And you two are like, oh, no, yeah, that's standard. So it has this, like, you two had the same exact, very specific sequence of words. So it's this bizarre thing where it's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be your story. But we all have exactly the same backstory. I felt like the three of us were auditioning for the same part (laughs) in a fantasy movie. Yeah, yeah, that's not wrong. It's it's sort of like the idea of of villainy and, and good from the Fable video game series and the idea of you are like pantomime bad, but also incredibly generic. It threw me at first <laughs> in the fact that you have these six playable characters all with different art and actually you realise they're just different colours. They're just like, which colour do you want to be? It's not actually, they're not different characters. There's literally no difference between them. It's like, do you want to be orange or purple? There's a thing as well where you have the the starting uh, starting area cards where it like t- determines where you're going to begin the game they, they promise this idea of a different story but they're all exactly the same yeah except the location on the board is slightly different <laughs> yeah it's and like, the board is random anyway but they're so. so specific it's like you've been thrown overboard for mutiny and i'm like oh and it's like you realize that they all say that and you're like what it's absolutely bizarre yeah there's i mean there's the experience was very alienating for me because it worked so so hard into telling a story like the central mechanic is this idea of um rather than resources you have cubes that are put into areas like you two will remember these better than Mm -hmm. me but like bravery and if you have uh what like or if you have strength but also mind then you can combine that to be confident or yeah or so, find a sense of peace yeah so it basically has like these core basic uh attributes and then like yeah it's just done in a neat little circle where everything kind of joins together in this circular nodes and yeah i think it's like bravery and will like the strength and will becomes bravery yes you know so it's it's this idea of a kind of psychological rounded idea of the best attributes for like intelligence and will is wisdom yes exactly and but then so you have the setup here for like oh we're going to be talking about the story of our character's personal growth and then you have a million beautiful pieces of concept art for like oh if you go and get a pet from the pet forest it's going to be this giant frog whereas i might get an angry boar you cannot have the same event happen to two players Mm -hmm. there's so much variety in the game and then despite putting all this time and unbelievably expensive art it makes crazy missteps like us all having the same backstory or despite the fact there's so much combat in the game you never actually fight yourself the entire game is about finding people to fight and die for you which then your character finds inspirational you are never at risk 
in what is a fantasy adventure game about getting weapons partially and killing monsters. It has some really interesting stuff that ended up being, the first time we played it, we had quite a lot of fun just with the, the silly theming of the fact that, yes, you don't fight things yourself. You know, you go to the monster cave and you just send in your toughest follower. Um, but every time you use these followers, you put cubes on them, which are also the cubes that come from your pool of stats, effectively, which means it has an... It's a rule that I just love of being like, you can't, there's, there's, there are ways you can do it, but generally speaking, the only way you can get those cubes back off their sheet is when they either die or you fire them. <laughs> so they're kind of an employee that you like pour all of your literal resources into until you're like, you were sending a guy into a cave hoping he would die. Yeah, dragon. Dra- every, <laughs> every single turn, dragon would fight the same monsters over and over again in the hopes that one day he would die and I would gain mind from it. <laughs> yeah, it's like you get your resources back. <laughs> it's Thanks, like you dragon. hired someone and covered them in like trinkets and bought all the stuff for them and you're like, mm, I could fire them, but that feels mean, so I'll just let them die. What's so frustrating is that this game is like a hop, skip and a jump from a beautiful theme about villains trying to make their own legend. You know, if you actually have it baked into the game that like, ah, oh, it would, your character's thinking, that'd be really inspirational if Jorgen went into a cave and was killed and then you need to make that happen so that you can craft a better legend. That's great. But no, the game is completely po-faced. Jorgen going into a cave for the eighth time and finally dying fills you with confidence for something. Like, it doesn't actually hang together, which no. was so frustrating to me. And it's a shame because there's really some some stuff there which is wonderful. Like, the, the fact that you then, you go to these different places and, you know, you, you, you go to fight monsters in the cave or you go to get, like, trinkets from this place or you go to, like, learn things about yourself. And you're, you're drawing these cards into a tableau and it's basically, it just ends up being a points thing. There were some lovely ideas for interplay in the fact that you have these hexagons that you reveal and you explore the map and you find different locations and then you can put tokens on these locations which means you then own them and it means if other people use them then you get points and i did like the fact that throughout the game it was a game that constantly gave you points it didn't matter what you were doing you just felt like it was just throwing points at you the whole time which felt very satisfying but then you have this thing if you go all right well this this temple is mine and you're all going to need to pray at it but then someone else finds another temple next to it and you're like okay fine or you can put down a token on the path and it means if people walk over it and one of the variants then you get things but it just doesn't happen. It's one of these things where it has so much promise of things that could happen and then none of that stuff actually happens. Yes, I think what's exciting is flipping cards and seeing whatever will happen next in terms of how much this coheres into a game that I actually liked. I think it's probably telling that my me talking about Vindication is just me talking about the storytelling. The game didn't land for me at all. I mean, when you talk about wanting a fantasy questing game, it had the same problem that that genre often has, which is I really care about my turn. My yeah. turn is amazing. I like flipping cards. Your turn, don't care. Like, when is it my turn again? To be fair, when we played it with you, we played it with a bunch of the like optional expansion things, and it's a lot less good with that. Mm. Um, this game makes a lot more sense to me when I realise it's a 2018 game that came out via Kickstarter. So it's one of these things where I had to check it out because it's it's one of the most beautiful boxes I've ever seen. It's just a wonderful production, and you think, wow, if this is even half as good as that, it's going to be fantastic. Um, but it really did feel like they made a promise on Kickstarter about this idea of like overcoming villainy and da da And then they just couldn't really work out how to do it or didn't try hard enough to exactly nail that because it just didn't, it felt like an afterthought. I just wanted to go back to what you were saying a minute ago about expansions. The expansions that come with Vindication are terrible. The in-the-box ones yeah. made me actively quite sad. They did include. make the game weaker or worse on a kind of varying scale. <laughs> the, the pets idea got us very excited mm. 
Um, I was super excited to ride into battle on like a big boar or something. Little frog. But no one, we were kind of almost just led to us getting actively angry at each other that no one was buying a pet. Yeah. Because we wanted to see more of the pictures of the pets. Mm-hmm. And also then the other stuff that wasn't just add a pet was like, there's this whole system similar to Lords of Hellas where you can put in loads of effort to build a big monument to your favourite god. But the monuments are these huge plastic miniatures that take up tons of space in the box. And you all you do is once you've put in all this boring effort just to make them, you just dump them on the board and that's it. They do nothing. They just sit there. And it's like, yeah. Great. Yeah, um, that was super disappointing and it was just such an unfun mechanic the whole board was just like you have to fill up your little board with lots of things that you would usually put elsewhere to to get cool stuff oh, yeah so rather than getting to do a cool thing you do a boring thing it's like yeah it was like having an upgrade in rpg where it's like if you get this upgrade it was like plus one percent to all future and you're like, <laughs> oh, it's, it makes sense but it's boring it's like eating your veggies first but then it's just veg. there's nothing after the veg <laughs> Yeah, it did feel like a knowingly slightly cynical decision because you open up the box and you see all these big plastic minis and you mm. think, okay, is this going to be a big plastic mini game? And it's like, no, these these are just little statues, which it felt like they then come up with a reason why one of the expansions would have you building statues. Yeah, yeah. And it just doesn't need to be there. No, absolutely not. But I guess that's a similar theme to the suburbia thing of like, Maybe I would have liked this game a lot more if it was a pared down thing rather than having a thing with yeah I mean, so true. many things it bleeds. I think if they put a little bit more into the the sort of the storyline and generating those like stupid tales, like the whole thing with 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 my boy Dragon was unintentionally very funny, but it well perhaps unintentionally funny, but it was funny and it was memorable and it was the best part of that I game. I still lovingly remember the disdain for which you introduced the big <laughs> boss monster we didn't play with. Oh yeah, oh god, you were just like, oh this guy's. What was it called? I can't remember. It's something Earth Trembler. And he just sits in the middle and does nothing. <laughs> he just brought out this gigantic figurine and just put him in the town and said, oh, this guy's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay. A cool villain. <laughs> a cool villain. But a deserving villain for Dragon to try and conquer. Anyway, um, Vindication. It's a beautiful thing. Um, it's not very interesting. And that's a great shame. However, both Vindication and Suburbia have something in common, which we found to be a little bit unusual and maybe something we should talk about. So it's time for a slightly new feature on the Shut Up and Sound podcast. It's Big Question Time. Big Question. So today's Big Question. We've had two games arrive in Shut Up and Sit Down Towers in the past couple of months, which have done something we've not seen before, very commonly. They've had the punch board for the game coming outside of the box. Have you seen this much, Quinns? I've I've not been uh, gifted with a vision of this horror. So we now exist in the world of game trades, and that means that these boxes ship with these plastic things that are perfectly formed to exactly fit everything in the box perfectly. But of course, that means there's not room to put the actual punch board that you punch the pieces out of inside of the box. Right. So it means you get these boxes that are already huge boxes. The Suburbia box is about, it feels like it's about a foot high. The actual package has another like good four inches on it because that's all of the actual cardboard. And then it's shrink wrapped to hold it together. Like one of these things where you get some sort of special deal with a box of cereal and it's got a big toy shrink wrapped to the outside of it. We had that with uh, Vindication and we had that with Suburbia and 
I just think it's partially insane. So on today's today's big question, we're going to answer. Big bits of cardboard taped outside of a box. Is it okay? Yes or no? I think it'd be pretty good if, we, if you did it with smaller games. Because the, the whole game trays thing, it works for that. But imagine if your tiny little game that normally would have a bigger box because it needs the punch board in it came in an even smaller box and the punch board was on the outside. I mean, retailers would probably struggle to get it on the shelf. But like, you know, you could cut down on the actual box size of so many things if you made it so that the punch board didn't come in the box itself. But then the problem is that you've also got the game trays in the box, which is why they're just, it's a huge box anyway. I, I, I don't know either. Okay. Well, I don't know. We don't know. I want that on the record. I don't know. I'm a maybe. I think maybe as well. And that's today's... Can I update my answer to maybe? Yeah. Okay, so it's a maybe. That's today's big question. The answer is maybe. Thanks, Matt. Thank, thanks, Tom. Thanks. Big question. Next up, we're going to be talking about The King's Dilemma by uh, Hjalmar Hack and Lorenzo Silva. Guys, guys, guys. Matt, look at me. Guys. guys. I don't want to look at you. Guys. This is the greatest game I've played in, like, a year. I don't know. It's really good. At least it is so far. Currently, I'm nine hours into the campaign. I am preparing to uh, do my video review. The King's Dilemma came to my attention after some glowing reviews by Mr. Tom Bassel and some other people on the internet. The King's Dilemma, I've got some of my review written just describing the game. I'm calling it maybe the greatest Game of Thrones board game there will ever be. Well, hang on a minute. Maybe. maybe. (laughs) Hang on a minute. Maybe. Hang on a minute. Okay. Hang on a minute. <laughs> I've got beef with that. We'll come back to that later. Tom, you've played a bunch of The King's Dilemma. Do you want to give us a really brief outline of what it is? Okay, so The King's Dilemma it is a like a legacy, big box legacy game in which you play a load of people around a king trying to influence his decisions and make your own ends. So you're, are you all kind of worm tongue type characters? Yeah. It's a lot of like sort of being Lord of Aris, little finger sort of thing, just whispering in the air. But you all play these separate houses that have their own interests that kind of run parallel to that of the kingdom. So you might be the sort of ultra religious house, or you might be the house that just wants to have a good time. Um, <laughs> just one of my friends. Party wants. house? Yeah. Well, there's this, uh, and the way the game is structured is you you draw these dilemma cards from the deck, and then you resolve them based on an, an I or nay or pass voting system. Um, and it's great because it's just a brilliant engine for role playing because everyone gets super into their kind of like their house's ideology. Like one of the houses is just really depressed. Um, another of them is super religious. I picked the one which is very rich but continually complains that life is too short. Sort of quite fun <laughs> things to role play, although um, the world building itself is quite serious, you know. It describes all the nations around you and the history of the world. And then the way the game works is very, very simple. You are the king's council. You're going to be advising the king. Every game is a king. So if you've played the Reigns video games, you'll know quite possibly where they sort of borrowed a lot of this from. A game of it is until the king either dies or abdicates. And when you make decisions on policy, it might make the kingdom richer or poorer, more or less stable, uh, more cultured or less cultured. And if one of these meters reaches the top, it means the kingdom is too wealthy and they can force the king out. Or if it reaches the bottom, the kingdom is so hated that he leaves. But if you last for long enough, the king might die of old age and that's nice. But maybe that's... Well, it's, that kind of feels I mean, like that, a win. Honestly, that's as nice as it gets. It's sort of. Um, but actually, what players are doing um, is dilemma cards come off the deck. So a, a super banal one the game starts with is, some windmills were burned down. Are we going to fund their windmills being rebuilt? Find who did it. Kill them. That is not an option. Players only vote for yay or nay or pass. 
and you might pass because you might not be invested in the vote because the way the game structures is you don't care how the kingdom actually does. Your house has a bunch of secret objectives and also within each reign, you might be a different person who might be a rebel or greedy or an opportunist or who just wants the kingdom to be nice. And then the game itself is really kind of just very greasy debate club. You know, you might be saying, oh, of course we need to build the windmills, otherwise people could starve. You're actually saying that because you want the kingdom to be destitute because that's who you're playing. (laughs) And then uh, the voting is pretty interesting because it works a bit like um, pots in poker because you invest sort of power tokens into a vote. You must say, I vote I, and I'm putting three power behind it. And if someone raises you, so puts in four power, then it, the vote only stops if it goes all back to them. So you're going to get a chance to add more power to you. Mm. So there's a lot of negotiation between players because you might not have power, but then something comes up that's like, oh yeah, your house, where your house live, it's going to be invaded. So probably like, one player is saying, no, 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 no. We, we have to send the army here. And then you've got four of your friends going, well. <laughs> um, but uh, what makes the King's Dilemma sing is a lot of these choices, and I mean a lot, cause you to open uh, little envelopes that come in the box and add new event cards. Having looked into the box, which is uh, mm-hmm. pretty much the extent of my thing, gosh, what a lot of envelopes. There are, I believe, 60 little envelopes. I ha- haven't seen so many envelopes since my wife was writing Christmas cards in December and gone, do we really need this many envelopes? Let me That's- tell you, Matt, you need a lot of those envelopes because a lot of them you won't be opening because uh, you never quite know what the consequences of an action will be. And I don't want to spoil anything. I'm working on the video review now in which I will continue to not spoil anything. But there are some wonderful moments where you never know which votes are actually forks in the story. So you might pass because you could do with making some money and you don't really care about a vote. And then it turns out that that event that someone pushed through has serious ramifications for the kingdom. And what's lovely in King's Dilemma is a lot of the time when uh, you pass a vote, you get a sticker that you have to put on the board and the player who was the most responsible for that uh, dilemma going through signs their name to it. So in future, when you know, you're dealing with the fallout of someone's stupid decision, literally a hundred years ago, you can all pretend to be, whose fault was that? Oh yeah, yeah. Chris's signature is right here on the board. Like, <laughs> it was Chris. It's a Kevin problem. I, uh, I'm going to be talking about this a lot more in a big old review. So well, I want to, because I know that you're, you're obviously nine hours in and yeah, at that point, like that's having fun. I would like to now interrogate uh, this because... I would like to bounce over now to Tom because you've played a bunch of it as well. I've played two games of it. Okay. Which, as apparently, like, you say you were four games in at nine yeah, hours? Yeah, but the games can be longer or shorter. Yeah. Um, if it shakes out that someone doesn't like, if someone doesn't think they're going to get a lot of points, um, they can uh, force the king to <laughs> die. <They> can, <laughs> that's a very real thing. If you're losing a game, then the ejector seat is to try and make policies that force the king to abdicate. Yeah, that makes so sense. a game might be long or short. Yeah. So, but the thing I want to ask about this, because you were talking to me about this game, Tom, sure. and you, the only concerns you had were the fact that you were opening up, the way the envelopes were working is you were opening stuff up and then adding these cards to a deck of things. Yeah. I think you felt like, for you personally, for the game to really land long term, you would have to see some sort of sense of these not these threads not being completely disconnected. Yeah, I was really worried because we, we left a month between our first and our second game. And I was super worried that not only would these threads like not intermingle, but we also wouldn't remember what we were even doing. I'm safe to say we actually did like everything we remembered really well. It was like, oh, that thing, that happened. That's yep. cool. The way that it organizes the plot lines on the side of the board, yes. which I didn't realize when we opened the box. But then when we when you start drawing more threads into the plot, they have their own separate categories. It's, it's organizes itself in such a way that it's super easy to pick up once you've played it a little bit. Yeah, it's quite easy to look through storyline cards. But also, um, yeah, yes, I do think that's a valid 
uh, worry Matt because I think the one caveat I have so far again nine hours in some of the most fun board gaming I've had in the last like year and a half yeah is that I think this is absolutely a game where you get out what you put in yeah a lot of the fun we're having is role playing and I'm going to talk in the review about why the game makes role playing so easy because and this is why I was talking about mega games earlier in yeah the week, yeah yeah you have that lovely observation that it's easy to role play in mega games because you're not a person you're a job Yes. And King's Dilemma does that. It's like, you're this bunch of stereotypes, which yes. makes it very easy to then get into like arguments about whether you should... Spoiler. So the know? second question I have really is for you, Quinn, is, is do you feel like... The, and I'm, my fascination with this is, is this one of those games where a lot of the excitement is about the potential of things unfolding in the future? Um, yes and no. Um, what I will say is you never know. A lot of narrative video games, um, you make a choice and then you go, oh, I hope that actually does something. Sure. King's Dilemma, everything is a surprise. Like, if you think this is a not important vote, not a spoiler, but if we do this, it'll probably annoy the nation overseas. Then if you pass that vote and then you, none of you care, we were laughing because often maybe one power goes through, or sometimes none of you vote because none of you care, then the moderator has to decide. But then you do that and it's like, oh, we're at war. And that (laughs) is, it's the opposite of what you're talking about because it's not like, Oh, this is a narrative will happen later. Yeah. yeah, it's like sometimes you just make a decision and the game throws a curveball at you and that is a delight. That's great. That's great. Now, I'm just interested because I find these things fascinating and I think about how often I've played games where there are these unfolding things that feel like an incredible electric exciting thing early on and then end up feeling faintly disappointing. And that's not to say that like the, the first half of the experience is great, but I'm just interested in that because I felt that particularly with the second season of um, Pandemic Legacy. I really enjoyed the first yes. half of it. And then actually the second half of it, I was like, because mm, I felt like things were going in a direction and they didn't. Ah. So that's what I'm wondering is like, I'm I'm not being like, oh, you're sure, but I'm interested. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it because I'm, do you feel like the enjoyment you're having has any capacity to be soured in retrospect? Uh, possibly. I will say that uh, an interesting thing is there is a single sheet of errata that comes to The King's Dilemma. The, the manual tells you how scoring works, which is like, you know, or oh, you're going to need this kind of, There's prestige and crave, which is what you really want. The role-playing thing makes sense because Tom had said that the scoring aspect of it didn't seem superfluous to a degree. Well, so this is the funny thing, right? Because the manual says, well, you get prestige, which is how well-liked you are, and then you get crave, which is how much your house wants the throne. And you actually get that from coming last. But the manual says, but of course, you'll figure all this stuff out later. You'll figure out what points are really worth later. Then there's a sheet of errata (laughs) that comes in the box, which is, let me clarify, you're going to need combinations of both of these points. Also, the errata comes with a different scoring grid. So the errata actually... Oh, did you not have this? No, I, I, I didn't. Well, I just sort of looked at it and went, ah, that's, that's errata. Oh. <laughs> but is it is it better? It changes how you score, yeah. Okay, sure. But importantly, it changes, like, the people who come in first place, the errata means they get more points. Uh-huh. So I think with regards to what Matt's saying, I get the feeling that King's Dilemma was released <laughs> and then playtesters played the early copy and went, when they got to the ending... Scoring like, superfluous. So they went to the ending and said... The scoring is bad. And so they've hastily changed it. So I don't know how I'll feel at the end. But what I will say is we're not playing to get to the end. Yeah. We're no. playing because we're having a great time. Yeah. Which which sounds a lot like um, the feeling I had when I was playing Gloomhaven, uh, which is yes. which is a good thing. If I asked you, uh, but what if Gloomhaven's ending is bad? You'd be like... Doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It, there's a little bit of it, that. So it's fine. There's okay. a little bit of that. Okay, exciting. Well, I, there's a copy of that in the office. I may crack because they sent over a bunch of them. I might have a go. I will tell Just you... Just for fun. I'll Imagine tell you, that. If it's... it's I think you should play it for fun, same as you played Pandemic Legacy for fun. I will say you definitely don't want to play with three. The box says three to five. For me, so much of the joy is like big arguments around a table with five people. With Mm -hmm. three, you would endlessly get 
two players ganging up on a third, which feels awful. Yeah. Whereas, you know, two players yeah. versus two players or two versus three feels okay. Interesting. Interesting. Especially because, Tom, you've been playing it without the rules of Rata and with three people. No, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> no, you haven't been no with three. I haven't. I had four and then I played it with five. because You can were, tap in and out then, can you? Well, we we sort of added in, but I'd be nervous about taking someone out. I think. Yes. I feel like it's one of the because it gives you like <laughs> stop inviting people. <laughs> it gives you like seventeen houses. I think it's to a choose it's from. a crazy crush. it's a crazy it's character. So many, screen. and it's just like it's crazy. <laughs> I just said crush. It's not even a word. <laughs> crush. Thinking, crush. But I was wondering, like, I wonder if it would work if you did put seventeen people into the game and it was just this huge massive. I was debate thinking club. that. I was wondering if it would work with six just um, for the last game. Oh, wow. Just like said, all of you bickering. I mean, if nothing else, like if this game sells as well as I hope it will, I would love to see a uh, sequel that's a little more ambitious because it, it reminds me of Fog of Love, honestly, in a way where it's like, we're going to try something new with narrative. But actually it works so well that I really hope we get the designers uh, doing it again. Incidentally, uh, the designers of uh, The King's Dilemma, Matthew, uh, also did a game that you might know called Railroad Inc., what? So yeah, um, they're a, an Italian duo who seem uh, like, as far as at this point, they're approaching godlike status to be able to do one of our favorite, most beautiful roll and writes, and then yeah. giant narrative. You always got to keep an eye on people who can do too many things. Exactly. Mundo. So moving on, because uh, yes, I will get too excited about the King's Dilemma and talk about it forever. I finally managed to play Kalos, uh, one of the most famous Euro games, in a new updated edition called Kalos thirteen oh three. This is by. William Attia. Um, some people say this is the original worker placement game um, that came up with it. Of course, then boring people on the internet will tell you actually Bus was it's the original. Bus. It was bus. I mean, boring people and us. I think we yeah, said that in the last we podcast. Did. We did. So yeah. I'm kind yeah. of trying to have my cake and eat it. So Kalos, uh, uh, the new version I'm playing, Kalos 1303. Haven't played the original Kalos, so I'm just going to talk about this. It's gorgeous. It's also showing its roots, the most generic Euro game in that it's in France. You're helping the French king to build a castle. Is there a monk track? Uh, <laughs> let me think. Um, there must be. There's a couple it's, of different tracks. There must be a monk track. There, it's obligatory. There's a church. You can build right. a church and I think you can turn the church, you can turn resources into points. The That'll church. have to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but structurally, this is one of the most interesting uh, Euro games I've played in a while. Um, I think you two will get a kick out of hearing how this works. So Kalos is a track. It's a long winding road, a bit like Great Western Trail, that eventually leads up to this castle. At the start of the game, you have these eight spaces. Like there's the lumber yard where you can get some lumber. There's a space where you can get workers, whatever. Um, players can then build buildings, again, in the style of Great Western Trail, and then buildings get added to the end of the track. However, players can also turn buildings into homes. So theoretically, your first game, your first turn of your first game of Kalos could be nobody actually builds a building, but someone does turn like the lumber yard into a house. That worker place space is just gone. Also, the the spaces that people choose to build is comes from a randomized shop, which means it's a worker placement space where players are simultaneously removing spaces and also adding them, which messes with the economy a great deal. But that's kind of fun. It's yeah, it's kind of neat. Um, we had a really nice time playing uh, this new version of Kalos. Um, very tight Euro game, a lot of mean things. But what I'll talk about on the podcast is a mechanic that is so cruel that um, I can understand why it's never appeared in a game since <laughs> Kalos. It's also the most interesting thing in Kalos. So there's, in this new edition, a little orange horseman called the Provost, right? The Provost sits kind of at the end of this row of buildings. Now, a bunch of 
<laughs> I already imagined him with a real grumpy face. He's super grumpy. So all the provost does um, as you, these buildings wind towards the castle and players put our workers, once you put all the workers down, you're going to resolve the buildings from the beginning of the track, winding all the way to the end. Now, the provost is able to be moved by some of these buildings. Also, players can pay coins to move the provost, to move him up or down the track. When you get to wherever the provost ended up, as you're executing the worker placement spaces, that's where you stop the round. So, like, maybe there's a cool quarry and a, a something that makes silk, and then a, your monks, Matt, you want to get your monks? You know I do. You put all those workers out, a bunch of players put the workers out, but then a player spends, like, six coins shunting the provost back six spaces. All of those worker placement spaces that you put workers on don't happen. Which, in a game which has maybe, what, seven or eight rounds, is absolutely <laughs> atrocious. So... Also, the buildings you're building that get added to the end of the track only get better. You build wood buildings and then stone buildings that have a bigger effect. So there's this delicious but potentially super mean thing where when Matt like puts a worker on the super quarry that I built last round, everyone else starts looking at where the provost is and wondering whether they can pull the provost back to eliminate everybody else from taking a turn. Having their go. Game. Exactly. That's horrible. It's super horrible. I mean, I find it fascinating, though, that it's... it's with some of these classic older games, you realise it is a different era. It and, is, yeah. Like, it's kind of exciting. Is that the same thing with Valley of the Kings, of just being like, oh, this is a deck building game where other people can destroy your deck. And it's kind of exciting, but it's also a thing where, it's, again, like things like Tigris and Euphrates, Tigers and Pots, yeah. reviewed. You know, it's like, these games are horrendously mean. <laughs> Um, just because they were born from an era where it's like, if you're going to sit down and play a board game with people, then you're going to sit down and play a board game with people who played loads of board games. Yeah, it's like... Which is kind of cool. You know, I have an all new respect we've, for these people who kept board gaming alive in the 90s. We've, we've talked on Shut Up and Sit Down before about, you know, there's this sort of hardcore of board gamers who, when no one was buying board games around the birth of video games in the, throughout the 90s and early noughties, basically... Um, there were some people who just kept the hobby alive, who imported games like Agricola from Germany when there was no English translation and would print out fan translations from the internet to stick on all the cards. Like, But then now I'm realising those games they were playing are so mean. <laughs> yeah. So not only were they playing board games when everyone thought they were insane, but they were playing horrible board it's, games. It's really feels like, it really feels like the equivalent of having a bunch of blokes in their 60s and then everyone leaves the party and they go upstairs to a dark room and they go, let's get out the hard stuff and kind of dust off this bottle of something incredibly yeah. strong and being like, right, now we're going to sit down and play a game that's like, it's intensely mean. Yeah, the fact that Worker Placement came out of Bus, which we talked about being like the meanest game ever, then Kalos, which super mean, and then Agricola, a game of Even starvation. all of these Rainer Knizia uh, auction games, which I hate. Oh my God. Things like Medici, where it's like, yeah, doesn't work unless everyone is kind of aware of the exact value of everything all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I can't do this. Um, so yeah, I, I with not all of these, but with some of these, I love to dip into them of being like, okay, we're going to sit down now and we're going to play a game that is going to be horrible. Yes. Um, I just wish I'd known that going into Kainos. <laughs> you need to know. <laughs> yeah, because what happened is I sat people down and went, hey, everybody, this is a classic Euro game. I think we're going to have a great time. And then someone would do something on turn three where I'm like, but that's awful. <laughs> and, it, and if I'd known that, kind of like I did with Bus, I would have been a bit more chill. But uh, yeah. So, uh, Kalos1303, a beautiful update of a classic game. If that sounds like your thing, by all means, get it. For me, I'm going to be sticking to my modern Euro games that make me less angry. I will quickly just add a thing uh, to do with the new version of Suburbia. Talking of updates of classic games, one of the things I adored about the new art and new Suburbia is the fact that they've made it so all of the little roads on the hexagon tiles 
all link up. And maybe that was in the original game as well. I, I don't know. I think it might have been a little bit, but yeah, that's a lovely, it's lovely art. And you realize oh, all of the roads link up, which means it looks like a little town. Also, the fact that um, since this morning, I've not been able to look at uh, the name Ted Ausback. Uh, or Ausback. Where is it? Ausback. Ausback without singing it to the tune of Baby Shark. So that's something for everyone to enjoy in their own time. Anyway, now, uh, before we continue and finish off the podcast with some updates on some of the games we reviewed recently, for those of you who don't or won't watch videos, um, <laughs> you know you're out there. We have a lovely reading from Ava Foxfort, our writer on Shut Up and Sit Down, reading their first column, which they wrote last year, and you can read the rest of the column on shutupandsitdown.com. This is On Going With Your Gut. I can see all of the numbers in front of me. Power Grid lays out every variable incredibly clearly. So many numbers spread out in stout cables across the board, the paper money rustling in my hands and on the adorable little power stations. Every number is ready for taking, and there's just no way I can keep them all in my head. Good evening, folks. It's time to watch my brain slowly fall apart. We talk a lot about how games are made up of interesting decisions. We don't talk much about exactly what makes a decision interesting. It's one of those quasi-mystical parts of game criticism. What makes one decision too easy and another fun? The answer isn't always lots of things to add up, but when lined up just right, that can be enough. Power Grid is a game I never want to teach anyone and I never want to show anyone. The board is a full platter of writhing numbers, like someone made Tagliatelli with a spreadsheet. The game is off-putting, overwhelming, full of dangerous little details and very, very tasty. Every number can be nudged by the whims of other players. They might build where you want, they might buy what you want, or they might bid more than you wanted. It doesn't just ask you to do a load of maths. It asks you to do that maths competitively. It throws an auction at you and asks you over and over again, are you sure you can't afford just a little more? Are you sure you can't make just a little more money? It's painfully cruel, and it's wonderful. A crunchy bundle of brain-overwhelming joy. I am not the sort of person who can hold on to all those numbers. The truth is, you don't have to work everything out as accurately as the concrete numbers on every component imply. This is business. This is your gut. You've got to keep an eye out for the moments when the market has shifted or is about to shift. Work out if you want to make your big push this turn or next turn. The turn after that? Too late. Some of my favourite games look like they need a mathematical occultist to piece together, but work best if you act on instinct. Get a rough sense of what you're trying to do and roll with the punches. There's a joy in letting your brain quieten down and trusting your heart. It's harder to do when your brain is screaming at you to think again. Games like this flood you with information. They pour possibilities all over you, give you options and numbers and routes and objectives. They let you think you can grab hold of these writhing numerical tentacles and wrestle them back onto the table. Games let you make a decision, put a piece down or shout out a number in an auction and immediately regret it. An interesting decision is one that, after you make it, you yell in agony. Agony and hope. Games make you care about things you never thought you would care about. Flat bits of cardboard, scraps of paper, little lumps of plastic and the numbers that link them all together. They can make you unbelievably invested in getting the right fuel to power little wooden houses scattered across a number-drenched German landscape. There's magic in those numbers. Magic in trying to hold them together, trying to keep everything in your head 
and make it click. Wrestling numbers into plans, into plays. Making mistakes that you care about, not knowing if you could have added your way out of it. That joyful agony is what games are all about. There's nothing like sitting with your friends while everyone's brains slowly crumble, reveling in each other's mistakes and successes, spitting out numbers like broken calculators, then giving up and letting your gut take hold. It's those joys that make games what they are. Shared puzzles, shared moments, hoots and yells and meaningful contemplative mathematical silences. It all adds up to a table full of drama, interesting decisions and agonising mistakes. That again was Ava Foxfort, and you can read more of their work on Shut Up and Sit Down, and we recommend you do. It's fantastic. Finally now, we're just going to quickly go over some of the things that we've talked about on videos. So, you shocked me to my very core uh, just a moment ago to when you came out and said that The King's Dilemma is the best Game of Thrones game ever made. Oh, of course. When I've just reviewed of course. with Tom a game which I'm kind of like, I don't say that specifically in the review, but I think War of Whispers oh, mine, is then, the best it? Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> the no. best Game of Thrones we've ever made. So uh, you're dead right. War of Whispers is absolutely amazing. Um, I think it's a superb Game of Thrones game. If anything, I think probably, I might need to change my script for King's Dilemma now. <laughs> uh, I'll definitely include some footage of your War of Whispers. So War of Whispers is like the military side of things. Yes. But of course, as anyone who's especially read the books knows, so much of Game of Thrones is just counsellors talking in a room while the country around them burns. Exactly. Um, so, exactly. War so, of Whispers. War of Whispers, we've just put up a video on the website. It may be a game you've not heard much about. It's a game which we discovered and think is absolutely wonderful. Um, it's. I'm not sure what availability be like at this point of this podcast going up. I know there will certainly be some confusion, I've realised, since looking at it, because the pricing seems wildly different, and it's because there's a deluxe version and a non-deluxe version, and lots of the websites aren't clear about which is which. So oh. that's, that seems weird, because either that, I don't. otherwise it doesn't make sense that in some places it's about £40, and in some places it's, places it's about £60. And I don't think that's to do with anything other than there are two different versions. Anyway, this game effectively puts you in the position of you being Littlefinger or Varys from Lord of the, Lord of the Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not familiar with Lord of the Game of Thrones, it's basically being a spy master pulling the puppet strings behind the curtain. So you're not, as in The King's Dilemma, one of these great houses vying for control. You are somebody trying to back the winning horse, but not just back the winning horse, work out the exact power structure of the country after this war. So the war's happening and you want to be the person, everyone, all of you basically are going to be sitting with the people who are winning the war at the end of it. You know, it's, that's the way it works in Game of Thrones. Yeah. You have people like Varys as a character. He's been around and he's served lots of Kings for a long time because they've always known when the wind is turning and they've known when it's time to go. Actually, I'm going to swap sides now because I'm going to be on the winning side. So everyone can do that in War of Whispers. And the way the game works is you randomly have these five different, um, you randomly have five tokens that represent the five different houses that are in this war. And at the start of the game, you shuffle them all up and you look at them. And basically that's the order of going from, I really want these people to do well in the war to actually, I'd really rather these people do badly in the war. And then you have these secret in front of you and you take it in turns and you put tokens on the board that allow you to then carry out actions with these different armies that are in a big circular board and you run through the actions in order in this circle. Now, we're going to more specifics on the video about how this actually works. It's a very, very simple game. It takes about 10 minutes to, to read the rules and then teach it, <laughs> which is amazing. Yes. Um, but the general gist of it is 
you very quickly understand who wants which armies to do well and which armies to do very badly. It's a very quick game. There's not enough time for people to be deceptive about that. You're like, okay, you want them to do well. I want these people to do well. The real game comes in the fact of trying to then work out which the middle tokens of which ones do you want to do slightly better? Which ones are you going to get three points per castle for and which ones are you going to get two? And basically looking at the board and working out clever ways in which you can just squeak ahead of someone else by a couple of points by being just slightly closer to the top of the power pile than other people in a way which is really quite exciting. And it means there's wonderful plays in the fact that often you'll put tokens down to control armies that actually you don't want to do well. And there's some lovely interplay, as we found, of sometimes realising that you don't want to compete with other players. And you, you think, actually, no, we're both fighting to try and take control of the yellow army, but we both want the yellow army to do really well. Mm. And I know that, so I'm just going to leave it to you. One of the things I really liked about War of Whispers was how all of the factions, you look at them and just think, oh, they're just cubes on a board, but they all have different starting positions. So one of the factions doesn't start with any troops at all, but oh, they've yeah. got the most towns. So it's interesting that you could, with enough plays under your belt you could probably form this strange meta of swapping your factions around based on that information rather than trying to work out what other people have perhaps yeah i couldn't agree more i got so excited at the end of our game when i realized that some of the factions are actually somewhat better it's really subtle but it's there and i i like that kind of stuff a yeah lot. i liked as well how um towards um towards the end as well, I had this idea of just saying like, hey, I think I've worked out what someone else is. I'll just piggyback on their successes and hope that everything else in the middle goes well. Yeah, exactly. If you can figure out that somebody else has red as their favourite faction and you just make red in first place and just look at their face. I think that's one of the things that kind of drew me to it is the fact that you can, in Game of Thrones, you can spend a lot of the game, as in the actual Game of Thrones game, not this this superior Game of Thrones game, you can spend a lot of the game setting up your kind of your best laid plans and then having them all sort of like smashed down. But Mm. in War of Whispers, it's so short and you can change things on such a dime that a few actions can completely change the state of the board. The strategy in it is super flexible. Oh, absolutely. Terrible things can happen to you, but the game gives you the tools to recover very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I had so much fun with it. I had so much fun. If, if, people are a sort of YouTube-y type, I would absolutely tell them to watch our review because King's Dilemma, there's a lot of hype. A lot of people know it's a really exciting game. War of Whispers, flying under the radar a little bit. This is a superb game that not enough people are talking about. I mean, there was a wonderful moment in the game, which only takes about an hour, in which I think Tom put down a token somewhere on the board and you just went, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) because yeah, it's it's wonderful in the fact that you can't even just be like, well, I want the red people to do well and no one else does. So no one else is going to put their token to take control of the red army because you can take control of the Red Army and you can throw them against a castle wall and like murder them all. Yeah. Or yep. like at one point I took control of an army that you clearly really want to do well, made them all reinforce in one part of the country where I knew they wouldn't have enough food to support them. So they all died. <laughs> and it was like literally calling in a thing and being like, yes, yeah, and all your reinforcements here. And then they all turn up and be like, why are we all here? There's too many of us. And then it's like, Oh no! I mean, it's just the way that it's entirely possible with how setup works that you might all want the same factions to do exactly as well as each other at which point you all would have identical scores but players get nervous because also at the end of each round you can optionally swap any two of your scoring discs so you can say yeah this faction that i wanted to do badly actually now i want them to do well yeah but you can only do this once around and it makes it public for everybody yeah so it which doesn't isn't a big deal but then towards the end of the game it's very much about exactly deducing the exact order of everyone else's tokens. So the less you've revealed, the more likely it is you're going to be in a good position to win. 
Um, but it is, it's wonderful. And the final thing I say, which I maybe didn't hammer home enough in the review, is if you are the sort of person who loves the idea of like treachery and backstabbing and all of that fun stuff, but doesn't like the reality of it when they play it with their game groups and finds that it sours the games and yes. experiences, this gives you the fun of being conniving, evil, backstabbing, traitorous. Yes. But you're never actually doing it to each other. Um, which is sometimes nice. Yes. Uh, when I reviewed the Game of Thrones board game, I wasn't able to put a lot of um, positivity behind that. But I will now say, if you want a Game of Thrones sort of war game, War of Whispers is that game. Yeah. So that's War of Whispers. Um, next up, we have a review that you put up on the website very Actually, a couple of weeks ago yeah, now. a few weeks ago, I reviewed Undaunted Normandy by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson the first. Um, a lot of the first and the second in board You've games. You've been getting into hunting them down, haven't you? The, yeah. The legacy yeah. Of, uh, of designer names. It's very interesting. But yes, Undaunted Normandy, uh, I talked a bit about it, I think, on the podcast last year. Uh, and all I'll say, it's got a video review up on the Shut Up and Sit Down YouTube channel. I think it's the best World War II game to come out in a decade. Mm. There's some competition for that as well. You were, of course, talking about Blitzkrieg, is it? There's a whole bunch of good stuff. Yeah, and then we like Memoir 44, but Undaunted Normandy is absolutely superb, and people should check that out. But more recently on the site, my Marvel Champions review just went up. Guys, what do you like the Arkham Horror card game? And I do. It's not as good, sort of. Um, it occupies some of the same... The uh, Quins, I'm not interested in Marvel at all. Definitely don't buy it then. Okay. Um, that's the that's the nut of that. But if you are into Marvel, then it might be great. It's a fantasy flight card game, which is to say it's pacey, it's entertaining, the combination of theme and art is really, really nice. You can be Black Panther, you can be She-Hulk, you can punch a villain and win the game from punching them just that hard. Uh, it's all right. It's good. It just didn't get me excited to um, buy new card packs. But a lot of people disagree with me. It's selling like hotcakes online. Mm. So if you'd like to see uh, the game in a little more detail, you can, again, check out the Shut Up and Sit Down YouTube channel. Fantastic. And I'm just going to quickly roll back to talk about your Undaunted Normandy review very briefly because uh, you capped it off with a really interesting thing, which I was, we're not going to talk about here, but you should watch it because it's it's very interesting because it basically it provides a little bit of extra history about World War II, which was interesting. Some of the stuff I already knew, it's talking about Churchill and India. I'd really recommend watching it um, because it's a great review of a great game. And then you get a little bit of history at the moment. Because I think about this a lot. And we've been playing a lot of things. We played Blitzkrieg. Um, and I realized when I was like at PAX Unplugged in the last podcast, and I said, who here is into Blitzkrieg? And we went, ooh, I was like, oh, actually, I feel weird about that. <laughs> you know, with, with a lot of stuff in the world today, I feel increasingly weird about lots of stuff to do with World War II and lots of that stuff the way we talk about it. And playing things like Air, Land and Sea and lots of these World War II games and really enjoying them. It's like, it's a fantastic framework for a head-to-head battle game. But there's a lot of stuff to do with the the narrative that we tell about World War II, particularly, which increasingly feels muddy and feels a bit weird in the, the modern world. Yeah, I mean, there was even an interesting, a few interesting comments on that piece. Uh, some people in the British Army commenting on uh, on our review of Undaunted Normandy, um, think, saying it was really interesting and teaching me things that I didn't know. But also some very valid comments being like, because the end of the review, I talk about how a lot of people aren't celebrated for their service, like mm-hmm. the Indian soldiers who died in World War II. Um uh, but then, of course, comments being like, well, hang on. So you're saying rather than celebrating, you know, these people who killed for their country, we should celebrate these people who killed for their country. And it's like, yeah, well, no, you're right. You know, but maybe we can start by at least talking about the world yeah, involved yeah. in the World War. And then we can start, you know, getting There's a lot of ethics. stuff. That's the thing. There's a lot of stuff to unpick. And there's a lot of stuff you look back on in terms of especially World War I heroes are being like, this guy killed loads of people. There's like, I can't remember his name, but a guy killed loads of people with the sword. He has the last recorded longbow kill in history. And it's like, yeah, but that's because... Like he demanded to be let to kill a man with a longbow and everyone was like, what are you doing? Oh, really? <laughs> because it's like, you just read about him and he was just a psychopath. He was like, everyone was like, 
you know, and there's lots of this stuff where you go, okay, huh. But I think, it, I think about this stuff a lot and I think about the framing of World War II a lot, particularly because of, uh, you know, the political situation we have in the UK at the moment of lots of people uh, thinking that Britain is still the best place in the world and that causing lots of problems. And that comes, a lot of that comes from the stories we've been told and the stories we tell each other mm. about World War II. So I think it's really interesting and I just encourage people to to keep sharing history because it's increasingly a realisation uh, in my mind that History is one of those things that we think of as something is taught in schools, uh, but actually history we're taught in schools is not, not very useful to a point, especially because most schools to a point are funded by governments and they have to create curriculums that can be approved by governments. And it means that everyone gets taught a little bit of history. And it's only when you actually patch them all together and listen to people from other cultures and listen to people from other countries about the way they've been taught about world events that we can yes. actually piece together um, a thing. I mean, which is speaking of patching together history, like a thing that makes Churchill make a lot more sense in my mind is that he, because of his age, was involved in a cavalry charge when he was young on a horseback, charging people to kill them in hand to hand combat. That's the guy who was leading the World War II army. It's fun, you know, seeing how different history is not discrete events either. Everything rolls into everything else, which has always been really interesting to me. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is I realize that with this sort of stuff, um, I still really enjoy World War II games and I really enjoy war games, but I think it's just, it's, it's, it's important as you play these things to just keep yourself with a more rounded view of history of the era, just so you can actually like be aware of, of like what the deal actually was. Um, because as we're starting to see, uh, maintaining these, these wholly kind of fictional views of things is sometimes a problem. Anyway, Wars. What is it good for?s Improving your geopolitical position on the world. Correct. The world. And that concludes this week's episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down Quizcast. Thank you very Ten much. Points everybody. to House Quinnendor. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then you know what you can do. You know what you can do. You can review it. But you know we've got enough reviews now that your review might not make an enormous difference. So what's even better is telling a friend about it. Uh, hey, you can tell a friend, and that's something that you can do that really does help us. Um, because uh, podcast discoverability is tricky. Not with your help. Yeah. You could be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time for another episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.